Hey everyone, and welcome back to CityWide Blackout, your home for the best creators from around the world. I'm your host, Max Bowen. And for this episode, folks, we're going to be talking about a very simple quality, but one which is very complex, and that is leadership. What makes a good leader? Is it their charisma? Is it their ability to capture people's attention? Is it wonderful hair? These things all matter, I suppose, but the biggest thing is training. It's all about the education that goes into making the next generation of leaders, and my next guest is talking all about that, author Jonathan Kroll, with um, with his new book, Preparing Leadership Educators. Jonathan, welcome to the show. It's good to have you here. Max, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for this audience and or for this opportunity, and I'm so glad to connect with your audience. All right. So now you've been working in this field, which is basically leadership training and mentorship for a long time, about 20 years. I'm curious as to what made you think one day, you know, I think it's time to write a book about this. The book came from a leadership training and a certification program that I was operating in Nicaragua. I founded a nonprofit organization after I earned my doctorate in leadership to provide intentional leadership training programs in Nicaragua. And as the second poorest country in the hemisphere, there's limited infrastructure generally and certainly in the leadership landscape. And so a lot of books are either leadership books are not published or printed in Spanish or translated into Spanish aside from the pop culture stuff. And I wanted to provide my participants with a really deep understanding of leadership so that they can be more effective as leadership trainers and facilitators. And so it started as a workbook and it ended up growing to 330 pages. I was printing it at Staples. I was like, I've got something here. And so I wanted to uh, expand the reach and deepen what I was putting into that workbook and found a fantastic publisher and stylist and and then got to work. And then it just came out last November uh, 2022. And I'm delighted with the reception that it's had leadership educators across the board from nonprofit organizations to higher education to corporate trainers are really finding value in the book. So I'm delighted with that. I like how this started as just something you were kind of doing, and then you realize one day, oh, wait, it's actually pretty thick here. I think I might actually publish this. That's exactly right. Yeah, it was, uh, it just grew and grew and grew because I kept wanting to add more leadership theories and more leadership practices, and of course, the facilitation skills. Uh, and it became, uh, it became quite a text. And I was like, I, I think there's got to be somebody that wants to publish this and put it out into the world. Yeah, exactly. Now, you mentioned other leadership books, and certainly there are tons out there and, and entire sections in, in, in bookstores. But I'd like to ask how you think yours stands apart from the crowd. Yeah, well, so it certainly does. And the reason for that is it is comprehensive, as the subtitle suggests. And I include dozens, literally dozens of leadership theories and leadership practices. So it's a high level overview of these leadership theories that it should inform our practice as trainers and facilitators of leadership training and development and leadership practices, ways that we can enhance our participants' skills and um, and character around leadership. And it is the facilitation skills piece. In fact, one one reviewer just commented that the most valuable aspect of the book is that third piece, the facilitation piece, because rarely are those who charged with and responsible for the leadership training and development 
ever fully prepared to do that work. We're often thrust into those roles because we're a great manager or supervisor or really have strong technical skills, but those don't necessarily translate to training and facilitation skills. And so for me, the, my calling in this world is to engage in trainer preparation. And this book does that by providing the facilitation pieces as well as the leadership theories and practices. And then another layer that makes this really special is I include for every single theory and practice over 45 an experiential activity and my go-to reflective dialogue questions. So if, for example, you're facilitating a training on communication or teamwork or adaptive leadership, you have an overview of those practices and the theory, as well as instructions on how to facilitate an experiential activity to bring that theme to life as well as my go-to reflective dialogue questions that enables participants to process what they just experienced. And so it really is comprehensive and it is a practical resource. Okay, you just chucked a lot out there. Certainly, as you mentioned, a very comprehensive book. Um, so this is really more to, as I'm guessing, kind of boost up folks who already work in leadership education. But what about someone who is maybe new to this? Does this book help them? And if so, how? Yeah, it certainly does. And in part, it's because I wrote it in a way uh, that's accessible. And so you can get a really grounded understanding of what is leadership and these dozens of leadership theories and practices and why they matter for us as trainers and facilitators and leadership educators. And so it becomes this practical resource that enables novice trainers to be grounded with the knowledge base and the skills to then facilitate dynamic, engaging, amazing, and impactful trainings. All right. You brought up a point that I want to touch on, which is what is leadership? How would you define that term? Well, I purposefully don't. And so the reason for that, Max, is because there are endless numbers of ways that we can define and understand leadership. We all have a notion of what leadership is, even if we can't put words to describe what leadership is. And so I try to stay away from defining it because then it comes back to the language that I'm using and the nuance of the language that I'm using. And we tend to then find ways to disagree or argue with the language of leadership. And so I choose not to usually to formally define it, but I do talk about the characteristics, and I write about this in the book, for what makes leadership important or leadership good or, or the boundaries uh, for leadership. And so one, leadership is relational. It's not this solitary activity that we're engaged in by ourselves, but that we are in relationship with followers. So that's one aspect. Leadership is also about development. It's about engaging folks to develop others' skills and capacities so that they can create change in their context or in our collective context. And then if we're not engaged in that work, if it's just a transactional experience or if it's rooted in my position or power or prestige, that's not leadership. And then I also believe that leadership is for good. And this is a debate within the leadership space is, is it value laden? Does it have value? Is it for good or is it just to create change? Some leadership scholars say that 
Leadership is about creating change and it doesn't matter if that change is for good or for bad. I tend to believe that it is rooted in doing good, that we don't ever ask for leadership to be bad leadership. For example, if we're hiring somebody for a job, we want them to have leadership skills, meaning skills to do good for our organization. Or if we're electing somebody for public office and they claim to be a different kind of leader, that's suggesting that that difference is good or better leader leadership than whoever's currently in office, as an example. And so I think leadership is for good as a, as a third component. But in the book, I talk a lot more about the different differentiating factors for leadership. Now, you mentioned not de- like really staying away from an exact definition as to what makes a leader. Is that something you kind of learned in your own training? It's been learned through dialogue with other leadership scholars and experts and practitioners and mentors of mine um, that we all have this different understanding of leadership. And it's a fun activity to engage with others about how we understand and define leadership. Um, but in public spaces like this, or even re- in my book, uh, I don't want to harp on what I define leadership as, uh, because then folks tend to not think for themselves about what it means for them. Or they might think, well, I don't meet this very specific criteria, so I must not be a leader. So I failed. That's exactly right. And the other piece, too, is leadership is very contextual. It's rooted in the situation with the exact folks who are in the space and the context of that moment. And so different types of leadership are necessary for different environments, for different times, for different collectives. And so to say that there's a single definition of leadership that expands across all contexts and situations, I think, uh, is a little bit overreaching and maybe foolish. Hmm. Okay. What kind of leadership does this book train for? Is it leader in business or maybe like a nonprofit organization? It's really a, across industries that I wrote preparing leadership educators as an opportunity to engage folks who facilitate the leadership training and development of others, who provide leadership training for others. And so it happens to be great for university administrators, which is part of my professional background. It's great for nonprofit leaders, which is also part of my professional background. And it's also tremendous for corporate trainers. You know, I put in my book that uh, two other authors, Bolton and Bolton, said there's a million first time trainers every year, that there's a million people in the corporate environment who are facilitating trainings for the first time every single year. And often they are ill-prepared to do that work. And so this book is also for them. I want to ask a little bit more about your own background, how you kind of got into working in leadership training, because I don't think it's the kind of thing most people think about as a possible career when they're in high school or college. That's exactly right. So I was involved in high school and college and lots of student activities and student leadership roles, clubs and organizations and an undergraduate orientation director and sort of all did all of the things. And then I went to get a master's in university administration. And, and that was at Miami University in Ohio. And I had a phenomenal experience because of faculty members at in my graduate program at Miami University who were excited about and intentionally exploring leadership from a scholarly lens. 
And so I had an opportunity to work with them, to be mentored by them, to learn with them. And, and that informed my own understanding that leadership is something that I could study, that I could become a professional in. And then after that experience, I went to Nicaragua for six months as an English language teacher and ended up facilitating leadership trainings there and then because of my interest in it and also the thirst that lots of young people had, university students in particular, for leadership development. They, this was something that was really uh, quite unheard of for young people. And so I started facilitating trainings and it just grew and grew and grew and expanded. Uh, and I kept going back every single year to facilitate leadership trainings, honing my practice uh, until 2015 when I earned my doctorate and then wanted to increase the impact of what I started and felt like a nonprofit organization was the best way to do that. So created the organization leadership trainer and then was doing and have been doing this work full time uh, since 2016 formally. Uh, and so it was all because of mentors and faculty of mine who illuminated for me that leadership was a space that I could formally work in. And, and, and I'm delighted to be here. I'm also now a faculty member and assistant teaching professor and the program director of our leadership studies program at the University of Rhode Island. And so I am living and breathing leadership in my nonprofit life and in my faculty life. Hmm. Let's talk about leadership in 2023, because the world is changing a lot, you know, in terms of what leadership is, what it's all about, I'm sure it's changed too. But what is it like to be a leader in the here and now, as opposed to like when you were starting out? It is significantly more complex. There's no question about that. And I would say uh, one of the original theories is the, the trait approach to leadership. And it suggested that there are innate characteristics. And you were sort of mentioning some at the very intro uh, right, and I think you mentioned good hair, but our attractiveness was noted as an important innate leadership quality. And it's actually not surprising that some research has been done that highlights good looking people are identified more as leaders than not good looking people, right? And so that is sort of rooted in our consciousness, unfortunately. Similarly, we often understand leadership because of how we're conditioned growing up, that it is about power, position, and prestige. And that leads to a notion of leadership rooted in personal reward. What's in it for me? In 2023, we need to change that understanding, that lens to be more about the authentic personhood. Who am I? What are my values? What is my vision? How can I create good work, worthy work in the world, and the purpose for leading. What can I do right now that's going to meet the needs of my organization or community? And so we need to change our fundamental notion of leadership because of the complex world and environment and organizations that we uh, live and operate within. Okay. What are some of the things that you feel like leaders don't need to have anymore that maybe were really pushed a lot back in the day? I would say we don't spend enough time in reflection that especially with in our sort of U.S. culture, we are on a go, go, go uh, pace and we don't spend enough time thinking about what impact we're having. 
and uh, the options that exist for us to move forward in our leadership capacities. And so I think it's important for us to oscillate between reflection and action uh, and not just be in that action space. Yeah. I often, I, I facilitate an activity where for a group of folks, especially in a virtual environment, I have them work through the alphabet, each person saying a different letter of the alphabet. Uh, and there's, there's four rules, there's four stipulations for the activity. But the important point that I want to make with this is whenever I host this, the participants, instead of creating a plan on how they might accomplish a task, just start by having people sh shouting out letters of the alphabet. Uh, and it creates chaos. And then it creates frustration. And then it opens the door for them to pause and to breathe and to be quiet and still and reflective before acting. And so we need to incorporate that reflection more into our leadership practice. Huh, so you kind of create some chaos to then create some calmness. That's exactly right. Wow. All right. Um, you mentioned the go, go, go mentality. I mean, of course, in, especially in the U.S., we have that grinder culture where it's like work yourself to death. Um, but it sounds like that needs to go from your perspective. It doesn't need to necessarily go, Max, but we do need to incorporate more reflection, quiet, stillness, purposeful pauses into our life. Uh, and by doing that, we can still go hard and we should, uh, but it's also about going purposefully and going in a, in a direction that makes sense so that we don't have to backtrack uh, and work through more challenges and more obstacles because of our mindless approach to these leadership uh, opportunities. So not just grinding for the sake of grinding, but having a direction and a goal in mind. That's exactly right. Okay. Um, how about leadership in the U.S. versus other countries? I'm sure you've had a lot of experience with this. Uh, how does it differ? Well, it does. We're very individualistic in this country. And there are places around the globe, Asia in particular, if we want to generalize, uh, that is much more communal and look for collective decision-making rather than sort of the individualistic, uh, rugged, individual, individualistic perspective of, of Americans when leading. And so that's one sort of broad statement. I will say there's an incredible study. It's called the GLOBE study, G-L-O-B-E. And it looks at leadership across almost the seven continents. I mean, across cultures far and wide across the globe. Uh, and it is an exploration of how people in different cultures and different countries understand and express leadership. And so for your listeners, Max, I would suggest folks take a look at the GLOBE study to see how leadership is compared across countries and cultures. Yeah, I've definitely seen that, too, just just in general, like with my work that, yeah, like in the U.S., we're all about like doing our best for ourselves, you know, to advance our own careers. But in other countries, it's more about, OK, what can you do to contribute to the company's success as a whole and not necessarily focused on climbing up that ladder? Um, yes. Does that, so it sounds like that that breeds two very different kind of different kinds of leaders, those two different mentalities. That's exactly right. And that's why it's important for all leaders and certainly leadership trainers and facilitators to have cultural humility. And that's one of the sections of the book. That's one of the leadership practices, cultural humility, where 
we can then engage effectively with diverse individuals from across the globe uh, in ways that are meaningful and developmental. I want to talk about diversity next, because certainly I think things are becoming a lot more diverse these days. How does your book tackle that? So a few ways. One is in preparing leadership educators, I talk about the deep importance for us to engage in our own identity exploration and development. That as leadership trainers and facilitators, we have got to understand who we are and be able to show up authentically in our training spaces so that we can engage with the diverse audiences in our trainings. And part of that is about creating, welcoming, engaging, safe, courageous spaces for all participants to feel like they can contribute and so that they can, across our diversity, access the training message and material, internalize that learning, and then be positioned to apply that learning to their practice. So that's one thing is we've got to focus on our own identity exploration and development. And and as a side note, I want to just also share my nonprofit's uh, flagship program is the Leadership Trainer Certification Program. And with that, we've got three core threads that are woven throughout the whole experience. One of them is on identity exploration and development. And so if folks are really interested in gaining the knowledge and having the skills to facilitate amazing, impactful trainings, then the certification program is certainly for you. And one of the things that we focus on is that identity piece. Hmm. I also, in the book, talk about cultural humility, and I talk about the importance of culturally relevant leadership learning as one of the leadership themes or leadership theories. Uh, And so woven throughout the book are opportunities for us to explore different concepts related to uh, equity and inclusion uh, and and identity. Mm. I like that notion of, of really knowing your own identity first, because I feel like if you don't know who you are, how can you really explore the identities of the folks you're working with? Um, now, of course, the other side of being a leader is sometimes you've got to let someone go. You've got to you know drop someone out because they aren't working out for whatever reason. Does the book tackle this topic too? It does not. And so it's really designed for folks who facilitate trainings rather than serving in a leadership role, a leadership position, and the nuances with different aspects of that. But I will say, you know, we include, I include in the book, uh, details on communication and emotional intelligence and these other practices that are really important for us as leaders that we can leverage if we do have to let somebody go or engage in difficult conversations. Uh, But I don't lay out for folks in the book, this is how the best practices for terminating an employee or something like that. I gotcha, I gotcha. Okay, Jonathan, so one thing I'm curious about, is this book just a one-off or do you think there's more down the road? Uh, There's certainly more down the road, maybe a second edition or a third edition. I'm already thinking about ways to enhance it. I'd also love to build off of this a workbook for folks to make it even more practical, another resource for folks where they can sketch uh, notes around their next training and what the learning objectives might be, which is one of the things I talk about in preparing leadership educators. And so to give folks an actual book for, for writing in their plans and preparations for their next training connected to the material that I offer 
in this text. Uh, and then I've got a couple other books that I'm thinking about. This is, it's comprehensive and it's robust and it's thick and I love it. And I think the the field could do with a much shorter version of the book. Uh, and so we'll work, we'll, we'll work on that. Oh, sure. The editing process is always killer. Actually, when, when you were going through this thing, did you wind up taking a lot of things out for, um, for one reason or another? I was blessed to not have to. Uh, and I kept adding in more and more. And, and ultimately, publisher was like, okay, that's, that's enough, Jonathan. Uh, but I really wanted to make this a valuable resource for folks from different lenses and different contexts, but who facilitate the training and development of others. And so I was grateful that I could include so many theories and practices that we can utilize to inform our trainings. And then of course, all the facilitation pieces, our training story methodology. So how to craft a five part dynamic and engaging, amazing, impactful training, our best practices around facilitation, uh, whether that's our presence or communicating effectively. And then of course, we have a whole section on experiential learning and reflective dialogue, which, which needs to be the cornerstone of our trainings. Too often, unfortunately, we lean into lecture-style PowerPoint slide deck presentations, and that's just not impactful. We have to create opportunities for our participants to experiment, to be hands-on, immersed in the learning, and that's what experiential learning and reflective dialogue does. Okay. All right. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate this. And for the folks at home, if you want to learn more about this course, get a copy of the book. It's leadershiptrainer.org. The information is all there. You can learn about the author. You can sign up for his programs. And of course, get yourself a copy of the book and learn to train the next generation of leaders. And Jonathan, thanks again and looking forward to the next conversation. Max, thank you so much. Really appreciate this opportunity. Author Suzanne Marriott joins me to talk about her soon-to-be-released book, Watching for Dragonflies, A Caregiver's Transformative Journey. Suzanne, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Well, thank you very much. It's just lovely to be here. All right. So uh, we're definitely going to, of course, dive into the writing of the book, but I want to talk a little bit more about your experience as a caregiver. Now, as, as I understand it, you began taking care of your husband after he was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. How did this all come to be? How did you wind up being his caregiver? We were married and uh, had been for quite some time. So uh, when he was diagnosed, it was, of course, a shock to both of us. And um, so it just gradually developed as patient caregiver, and as well as husband and wife. Uh, so in the beginning, I was just uh, doing whatever I could to support him and uh, to go with whatever the future held for us together. And um, so it was a gradual process of uh, taking on and accepting uh, more and more of a role of a caregiver. Now, when this happened, did you really know what you were getting into? Did you were able to do anything to kind of ready yourself for this new role? I had no idea what I was getting into. 
and neither did my husband. We were just in shock because it all started when he actually collapsed on the job and we didn't know what was wrong. Uh, did he have, I was at work at the time and I got a call from him. Uh, he was home, he'd collapsed. And uh, so could it, could it be a stroke? Could it, you know, what happened? We didn't know. Um, so um, after calling uh, the doctor who's, I, I got the message that we needed to go to the ER. So I drove home and uh, then took him to the ER and it gradually just went on from there. We didn't get a diagnosis right away. But the next day we had an appointment with his primary care doctor who then made another appointment with a neurologist for us. So we were kind of been, you know, we didn't know what was going on really. We had a suspicion because the doctor said, well, it could be MS, but it could be something else. So um, the neurologist though pinpointed it very quickly and we knew. That had to be devastating. Uh, my uh, grandmother had MS, and I knew oh. it was such a change because before she was so very, very fiercely independent, and all of a sudden, a lot had to change very, very quickly. Really. Well, we we could look back and we saw that things that we had been in denial about um, now took on a different uh, light because we he started to slow down when we were in hikes and suddenly I was in front, which and usually he was ahead of me. And so, uh, you know, we looked back and he always made excuses. Well, it's this, it's that, it, you know, I'm tired or whatever. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I can safely say I'm very much in that camp where it's like, oh, it's no big deal. I'm just tired or, you know, like I work too hard today or something. And then you can't deny it anymore. It's something a lot more serious. Uh, how did he take the news? How did he take this very, very major life change? Well, I remember when he was um, lying on the uh, gurney in the room, in, in the ER room, it became obvious that uh, something serious was going on. And he just said, I'll take whatever they have to throw at me or something like that. You know, he just did this stoic thing. And he reminded me of his father, <laughs> you know, who he didn't get along with. But uh, uh, he just decided to ar armor himself at that point. He is a far stronger man than I. I can tell you that. I would not be doing as well as that. I would be falling apart completely. <laughs> well, because he wasn't, I wasn't. Oh, wow. Because I couldn't. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And again, we didn't know. We didn't know how serious this was yet, but it was, we were getting intimations of pretty serious. Okay. Uh, I'd like to talk a bit about the early days as his, as his caregiver. What was your role exactly? What did you have to do for him? First of all, I did, I'm the kind of person who likes to know what's going on. So I did a lot of research and we reached out to the MS Society and at that point, they did a lot of uh, programs for for people with MS. I think right now they're more into research and development. But um, uh, we um, got information. 
We read about it. We went to a, a kind of a newcomer's uh, little get-together that MS put on, and there was a doctor there and uh, other informed, people who informed us about the disease. So gradually we began to learn about what it was we were facing. And uh, it also involved a lot of paperwork. So it, a little bit further on down the line, I was, of course, the one to fill out all the forms and apply for disability and things like that. Wow. But it sounds like you had a fair amount of support going into this. The MS Society was wonderful, and we both ended up in support groups. Mine was for caregivers, and he was in two support groups for people with MS. And uh, these were terribly uh, supportive and helpful because uh, I got, we got a lot of information, but also a lot of sharing and uh, just learning from other people. How do you think things would have been different if you didn't have the MS Society around to help? Well, we would have kind of been in the dark a lot longer. I mean, the doctors were helpful, especially the uh, neurologist. But, you know, you don't see them every week. Um, so it, we did live in the Bay Area, across the Bay from San Francisco. So there were a lot of uh, places to get information uh, through San Francisco, uh, UCSF, University of California, San Francisco Medical. Our, uh, hosp our HMO also had a library. But uh, without the MS Society at that point and what they did provide for us, uh, it would have been much more difficult. No doubt. No doubt. All right, then let's talk about the choice to write this book. And this book essentially chronicles your experience as a caregiver. Not only that, but also how you sort of grew as, as a person throughout this process. Um, I'd like to start with the choice, though, to write this book. What happened that made you say, you know what, this has to be out there for the world to see? Well, my audience, the people I hope to reach, are other caregivers and anyone really who's facing a life-changing uh, crisis. Um, because I think my story is broader than just um, caregiving, although that's huge. But basically it was, it was an amazing upheaval in my life and in his life, our life. And so my hope is that my, uh, by writing this book and getting it out, I could inspire and reach other people, caregivers and, and people in, in undergoing um, emotional and life changes. Was this your first time writing a book? Yes, the first actual book. I've done a lot of writing. Um, I was a grant proposal writer, too. And I think I've always been writing, you know, from the time I was a kid, writing in my diary and so I, I, I love writing. I loved reading. Um, so for some reason, and I'm, I, I, didn't, I don't know why I did this, but over the course of those 10 years, I kept journals. I had 12 journals altogether, and um, they were very detailed. 
I have lots of dreams in them and all kinds of uh, growth type incidents and and so forth, you know, uh, in, insights I got through therapy and so forth, as well as uh, everything he was going through and all the medical uh, visits and the hospital stays that he was in. So um, uh, I was in, uh, in therapy at the time uh, just for support. It was a Jungian-based uh, therapist. So as I was taking my journals into her, I was reading some of the entries after Michael died. She said, you know, I think if you turn these into a book, they could help other people. So that's that was the impetus. I'm so sorry to hear he passed away. Yes, it was 10 years. Um, but yes, he did pass away. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. Thank uh, you. Thank writing a book like this, sharing this part of your, both your lives, obviously it's a very personal thing. Did you ever hesitate when it came to sharing certain aspects? Well, I decided at the beginning to whitewash nothing because I made mistakes. And if I were going to reach other people, these other people are human. <laughs> They're going to make mistakes too. And I didn't want to present myself as being perfect and knowing everything because I wanted to encourage people to learn from their mistakes, accept their mistakes, learn from them and and go on and, and have faith in their ability to persevere and to meet the challenge. So, um, I, I, I even went into um, our conflicts. Before Michael was ill, we had lots of uh, arguments, like most couples do, power struggles. Um, so I went into all that. And my book shows how, through this crisis, we actually grew closer together, and our intimacy grew. And we had learned to have more trust and acceptance. Um, so I, I just wanted to, to present a full picture, not an idealized picture. I see, I see. Were there parts where you thought to yourself, hmm, should I do this? Do you ever have that kind of should I or shouldn't I discussion with yourself? I did. And Michael had three stepdaughters who lived with us most, most of their growing up. And so around that, you know, they didn't want to be exposed. So, uh, you know, I did many revisions and, and some had, uh, some things that, um, I decided later, mostly in con that concerned the children that were grown up then, um, that I just decided would not be important for the story that I was trying to tell and might be detrimental to to them and their privacy. So the, it was it was more that that I was hesitant and um, you know had second thoughts about the you, peripheral people actually. Yeah, of of course, of course because being a caregiver it's not just a one-on-one -on -one thing. There's other folks involved. Relationships can change, there can be challenges. I'd like to ask a bit about your personal life. I mean, you go from, you know, you were both working. It sounds like you had a very active life. You traveled a lot. That all comes to, let's face it, a stop because this because this new role. How did you adjust personally? Like, did you find yourself losing connections? 
One of the things we decided early on was continue doing the things we loved the best we could. It was not, it was how we were going to do it. So we did a lot of adapting and, and MS was gradual for Michael. So he began walking with two hiking poles because we'd been hikers. So um, that really got, uh, we, we couldn't hike like we used to, but he would go to places and see how far he could walk without getting too tired, you know, when he had to turn around. So he would test him, test his boundaries. And then um, at one point, we bought a very small RV secondhand, a little Winnebago Lacharo. And Michael was still driving and uh, using hiking poles. Wasn't yet in a wheelchair, which was later on. So uh, we still could travel. And the thing was that when he got tired, there was a place for him to rest. And I could go off maybe for a little while while he was resting. And so um, we found that by then he had disability status and the, the state parks have wonderful accommodations. And uh, we, we went up the whole coast of California because we lived in Northern California and uh, had a very nice time, but we did have some crises along the way. And uh, fortunately we had our, our home on wheels. That's so great. I love that you were able to maintain that because it sounds like you two were a very, a very like travel couple. You went to different places. You love to hike. So it's great that you got to keep that going. That sounds like it was a really a cornerstone of your lives. It was, we were very active. Uh, We would backpack in to places and camp and uh, we got into mountain biking. We got quite good at mountain biking and uh, I don't know if you know California at all, but Lake Tahoe here is a beautiful natural lake. And, and there's a, a trail high above called the Flume Trail that used to be a flume for uh, um, d- during the mining days, um, water, held water. Uh, it's now a trail for biking. It's quite rigorous and we were able to do that. And so we'd, uh, we were very active, yeah. Yeah, I am feeling very, uh inconsequential in, in this moment now hearing about all the things you do it's like I, I gotta get out more and do more stuff because you just <laughs> kept right going didn't you oh we did as much as we could for as long as we could okay yeah all right um going back to the book how did you know when it was done because i know the editing process can be just as long as the writing process the the go backs and the reviews and the one more times and one more times well, I wrote this book over, I think, 15 years. Yeah, it was a long time before it was actually pub- published. And um, it went through many, many revisions. I worked with two different developmental uh, editors. And originally it was Michael's story because I was so involved and focused on Michael. At one point I decided, well, this, this has to be my story. And people would say, is this your story or Michael's story? <laughs> and I, I didn't know for a long time. Um, first it was Michael's, then it was ours. And then I realized, well, I have a story here. And um, my story could help other people who were 
in a similar situation. So that's became my focus. And, uh, and I, I think that was a good choice. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Uh, how about the editorial process? You worked with, uh, I think you mentioned you worked with a couple different, different editors. Um, what was that process like in terms of the back and forth? Well, it was with both uh, of the editors I worked with, it was all through email, track changes on Word. And it, it, was, it was great. Actually, I loved it um, because I, I, I could see things through fresh eyes, get new ideas, um, see what kind of things needed to be tightened up, like the chronology, um, um, detailed things. The original version of the book versus the final version, are they completely different? I think so, because, um, as I said, I was focused on Michael's story. It's not that Michael's story isn't in there. It definitely is. But it, it, but my story is, is the primary story. And because we were so close, um, it's, it's also the story of a couple's story, as well as the story of... Uh, of the progress of the disease and how it affected him. I'd like to ask, um, how would you say your relationship changed over the course of Michael's disease? Well, one thing I realized early on because, uh, was that these power struggles and arguments had to stop because he was more vulnerable. And uh, he could be, he could go into an exacerbation, which is an, an, an a weakness of the, and it's like a crisis and a new symptom emerges that doesn't ever go away. And um, so I realized that I needed to be less reactive and more responsive. I needed to respond appropriately when uh, things happened rather than reacting impulsively from old patterns. And so um, I made a, a deliberate effort in this respect. And because I made the change, and because Michael knew he needed me in, an, in, a, in a new way, he also changed. And actually, our intimacy grew, and our trust in each other grew over that time, over those 10 years. I, I just know that this can be a real challenging time. It's great that you two were able to get closer because of it. What would you say your book has to teach people who are going through the same situation? Well, for the caregiver, to take things one day at a time, really, to and but to be prepared and for for things to get worse because they will, and to be to have support. And, and not try to do it all on your own. Now, I, I mentioned Michael's children. They did help. They were very helpful. But they weren't there all the time because they had their own lives. So at, I would encourage other caregivers to look for help and support. And at one point, I did hire someone who would come in because it became too difficult, especially when Michael was in a wheelchair, I, he needed help with dressing, bathing, uh, everything. So, uh, and I was working full time. So she would come in in the mornings and get him dressed and get him, you know, get him bathed, dressed, and all those things. Um, 
so it was well worth it. Unfortunately, we we could afford to do that. Um, all right, I want to ask about the title because this is a very wonderful title. Really, I really like it. But what's the significance of dragonflies to the story? Well, as I said, we had that RV when Michael was using his hiking poles to get around. He had two, and he was very much dependent upon them. And uh, we were on the Eel River. We were camped at a uh, campground on the Eel River. And um, we went down to the river. And very, I found a very gentle trail down there. And um, there was this one time when we were down there. And it was a very gentle current there in a fairly shallow area. And um, I was practicing swimming um, against the current and then letting the current carry me back. And I was going just this little area. And I noticed Michael was on the other side of, of the of the river. It wasn't a long, huge river at that point. And it was shallow. And he had walked across without his hiking poles because with MS, if, if, he, if you're chilled, you have more function. And the water was cool enough that he found he could walk in the water to the other side, to the other bank. And I noticed that he was standing there looking at something. And I went over and I said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm watching the dragonflies. And they were flitting about among the reeds and the sun was catching their, you know, glinting off the wings and this iridescent color. It was like a light show of... of uh, dragonflies. So um, he was just transfixed and we just stood there together for a while watching. And those dragonflies became a symbol for him, a symbol of a time he was strong, he could walk. Um, it, it was it was inspirational for him. And so he, um, after that, they would buy little dragonfly uh Anything he's anything with dragonflies on, he would he would buy. He had a little dragonfly pin he put on his hat, and it they just became very important for him. And I I took that after he did pass away, um, that symbol I took it on as mine uh, for uh, strength and hope for the future and all that. Mm. That's wonderful. That really is wonderful. Now, as at the time of this recording, your book is about a couple weeks away from being released, and this is being done through She Writes Press, and we've mentioned a number of times in past interviews, definitely worth checking out. Um, I have a two-part question for you. How did you come to work with She Writes Press? Uh, and also, how are you getting set for release day? Where I live, I belong to a, uh, a writing group. I had heard in one presentation that, that someone made for our group about She Writes Press. And I just kind of, you know, squirreled away that information. Um, I did try, um, I made some attempts to, to find an agent or to direct, to uh, reach out directly to publishers. But that wasn't moving quickly enough. And, and I know that even you know, famous authors in the beginning have maybe hundreds of rejections. So I just thought I don't have that much time. Um, I want to get this out there. And I spent so long writing it. 
So um, I looked into She Writes Press, and uh, they they just look like a, a wonderful um, way to go. They are competitive, so I had to be accepted. And um, they were they've been very supportive, and and they they just. It's a hybrid publisher, so they just shepherd you through this whole process, which I could never have done on my own, and uh, got the book out. All right. And I absolutely love the cover art. The cover art for this thing is just beautiful. Uh, who designed this? Well, they they have several designers they work with, and so I got um, several possibilities of covers and then I could give them feedback. Well, I'd like a little more of this or more of that. And so um, of the maybe six or seven um, possible covers, um, and this was all, you know, through email and online and so forth, um, I chose the one I that you see, and uh, I really like it. I think it's lovely. It definitely is. It definitely is. Now, um, as I mentioned at the outset of, the, of this interview, down the road, you would have your own medical challenge when you received a cancer diagnosis. Um, I, I'm just sorry you had to go through that, especially after going through your husband's condition, too. But um, I do want to ask about how you faced that, having gone through a similar situation already once before. For some reason, I just knew that I was going to get through this. It was a shock, and, and I was working, and almost immediately retired. Uh, my, I was then um, a full-time grant writer. I had been a teacher for my school district. And so I was writing grants, proposals for them very successfully. And um, they gave me the choice to, uh, to continue while I was being diagnosed and, you know, going, deciding what would be next or stopping immediately retiring and uh actually i had read an article about how important it is to just stop your life and focus on yourself if you can stop your work life and um i was able to do that and other teachers were wonderful they donated their besides using my own sick leave uh, they donated many donated theirs so i did get credit till the end of the year and uh, I also did a lot of alternative uh, work as well as uh, the, the allopathic. I had a wonderful surgeon, but I did um, guided meditations. I did uh, read the Sim Simonton, uh, and there's a man named Simonton. He's since deceased, but his program is still continuing and with wonderful uh, work with uh, so-called terminal cancer patients who whose life has been extended. I read his books. I went to a healer. I'd been uh, early in, when I was a child, I'd gone to science, Christian science Sunday school. I went to Christian science practitioner. I mean, I did hypnosis. <laughs> and I had also been studying Tibetan Buddhism. So I did a lot of meditation on uh, with the... Uh, Medicine Buddha, the Blue Medicine Buddha. So I just did about everything I could think of to uh, foster my own healing. It worked. 
I'm glad to hear that. I'm very glad. Yeah, it, it sounds like you went through a lot of different kinds of treatments, not just the more straightforward approach. Why take this approach, and how would you say it, it, it helped you? Well, I had studied transpersonal psychology. I have a master's in transpersonal psychology, which um, I had done uh, several years before Michael was diagnosed. But this really uh, gave me a foundation in uh, transformational work and in uh, knowledge of various spiritual practices, as well as um, psychological insights. So uh, I had a background in this kind of thing, and I'd always been interested in spirituality and read all kinds of books. And I had been um, rather deep, gone rather deeply into uh, Tibetan Buddhism prior to all this, and that's carried over. It seemed the natural thing for me to do at the time. Oh, I'm glad it worked. I really am glad it worked. Um, and I had a wonderful surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> and that helps too, of course. Um, yes. Yeah. Props to the uh, to, uh, to the other doctors out there every time. How are you now? I mean, like this is obviously a really intense journey you've been on. How would you say that you've transformed from it? After the surviving cancer, I had a new sense of self-worth, a new sense of, of my worth based on intri intrinsic self-worth rather than how well I was doing as a caregiver for Michael. I realized that, well, that aside, I have a right to my life for myself. That, that was an important transformation. As Michael's needs increased over the time that he was ill, um, I became more assertive. And with, uh, there were some medical situations that um, were not right that I had tackled head on and changed, made right. So I grew in assertiveness, I grew, I grew in self-confidence. I knew skills, uh, I did things that an, an RN would usually do towards the end at home. So all those changes um, were positive, I believe, carried over. So Suzanne, what is next for you? Uh, the book is out pretty soon. Do you think you'll be doing another one? Um, well, I will continue to write. Right now, uh, I've been doing a lot of guest blogs uh, and uh, articles, as well as interviews. And, uh, and so I'm doing a lot more writing, actually, but, but more in the genre of uh, a period for periodicals or online. Uh, oh, I did have wonderful coverage, though. It's Spirituality and Health magazine. I'll mention that. There's all my whole first chapters in... Uh, the May-June issue, it's under the title Relationships. So um, I will continue writing. I don't know if I'll do another book, but uh, I'll probably always be writing. Yeah. Well given, well, given the feedback here, I'm actually looking at your website, and you've gotten tremendous response from a lot of different people who I'm sure are, are leaders in their respective fields. I'm curious how that impacts you seeing all these all these accolades coming in. Oh, it's wonderful. And I did reach out to all those people and I'm I was just so so grateful for the support I received and uh, uh one of them, uh, Judith Fine, who is a well-known uh travel writer 
and a blogger, she blogs for Psychology Today, had, I had taken several um, travel writing workshops from her. So, um, but that, that had been quite some time ago. So reaching out to her and getting her support and reconnecting with her was wonderful. So all the people that uh, supported me have just really been a, a gift, a wonderful gift. Looking back on this journey from when you got Michael's diagnosis to where we are now, how do you feel about this journey that you've been on? Well, I have mixed feelings. In many, many ways, the journey was positive and the growth I've mentioned and, and our um, increased intimacy and trust and connection. Uh, but of course, I miss him very much. And I did get into um, after-death communication, and I feel he is close to me still. I went to the Monroe Institute. I don't know if you know about them, but they do what's called hemisync, and um, it's it's a way of of reaching different levels of uh, consciousness. That that was that was healing. I went to mediums. I did all kinds of things. But there were after Michael died, there were many synchronistic events that happened um, and dreams that I've through which I felt connected uh, to him. So um, he, he seemed very present. Uh, and my book talks a lot about that, how we connected and how I felt about it. Well, Suzanne, thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. And for the folks at home, June 6th is the release date. You go to SuzanneMarriottAuthor.com. It's all there. You can pre-order this thing. If you listen to this after June 6th, buy your copy. Get it now. And, of course, leave reviews. It helps everyone out. And, Suzanne, thank you again. I really appreciate the time. Well, thank you. I so much appreciate your time and having me here. Thank you. And that brings this episode to a close. Thanks to everyone for listening. And be sure to follow the show on Facebook at Citywide Blackout and Twitter and Instagram at Citywide Max. You can reach me at citywidemax at yahoo.com to suggest a guest or submit music for the Blackout Collection playlist. You can find the show wherever you check out your favorite podcasts. And new episodes are aired every Saturday at 10 p.m. EST on Boston Free Radio. That's all for now. And I'll see you next time.